Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It was, uh, oh, thank you. Thank you for that feedback. I like that. Um, thank you. Good morning, Dan. Good to see you again. Um, it's glad to be, I'm, I'm glad uh, to be back. Uh, it's good to be with you all again. Uh, Sasha and I were traveling last week. We took a uh, little baby moon. Uh, we wanted to just get together uh, alone without the kids before our baby girl arrives next month, Lord willing. And uh, we had a great time, uh, great time of just spending time together, um, just enjoying time away and uh, really just trying to figure out what are we going to do with this time that we don't have our kids. And uh, we really just spent a lot of time eating and talking about them, right? It's kind of what you do when you're away from them. But uh, we, we got to worship with uh, Lakeside Baptist Church uh, in Myrtle Beach last Sunday, and uh, they are a very like-minded church, and it was recommended from a, uh, some other pastors, and it was really good uh, being with them, really enjoyed our time together with them, but man, it's just no place like home, right? Um, just miss you all. <laughs> happy that we, that you're missable. Uh, happy that we love you, and uh, we just, we're, we're blessed by each and every one of you, our church family, our brothers and sisters. Uh, also thankful to uh, the elder team who values family. Uh, it's very important for, uh, you know, pastors especially to uh, remember that their ministry uh, first and foremost is the home. Um, men, you have a job to do. You have a job first and foremost in your home to shepherd and to lead and to minister there. Uh, that's your primary responsibility. Everything else is secondary aside from your own personal sanctification. So let me encourage you men, invest in your marriage, invest in your wife, uh, invest in time alone with her, especially if you have small children. She needs a break, okay? Get her away from those kids at times and uh, love her, treat her well, and it's important. I invite you to just continue to pray for uh, Sasha and I as we uh, wait the arrival of Selah Rose Cash, hopefully here in April. Thank you to everybody that was at the baby shower yesterday, just showered our family with love, and uh, we are grateful for that. <clears throat> Join me now, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the back. Uh, I'll be teaching from the ESV, and it's typically where uh, we spend our time in our morning services. But we're going to be looking at John 1, 29 through 34 this morning as we continue our study of the gospel according to John. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. <clears throat> if you're new to the Bible, John is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. The big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. I'd invite you to follow along with me. 
I'm going to read John 1, 29 through 34. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at this text and ask God to speak to us today. Verse 29 reads this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your mercy your love, for your grace that has been displayed in and through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you have not left us wondering. You've given us instruction to correct, to rebuke, to encourage, to empower us even to move in the power of the Spirit at work. So, Father, I ask for your help as we look at this monumental text before us and we uh, attempt to understand the implications here for us. Father, we we can't do it alone. I cannot do this alone. We need your spirit to work. So we, we ask for that. Father, I would ask that you would change us, that you would help us to leave here different than we walk in And I ask what we know not, you would teach us. What we are not, you would make us. And what we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. So this portion of scripture continues to highlight John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus Christ. We've already seen the unique character that John the Baptist displayed as he was questioned by the culture's top influencers, and he humbly deflected glory from himself to Jesus Christ. Today, as the narrative continues, John the Baptist points to the uniqueness of our Lord, of Jesus Christ himself. He states very clearly that Christ is unequivocally the one true Savior of the world. John the Baptist boldly declares that there is none like Christ. Here in verses 29 through 34, John the Baptist starts with an extraordinary declaration about Jesus Christ. And then he punctuates this declaration with a confirmation based on his own experiences 
when he then baptized Jesus. Now, the Apostle John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus Christ. Uh, the other three gospel writers give attention to the baptism of Jesus. But John's gospel has a different style. It has a, a different kind of structure and even a different purpose. Uh, he seems to be more interested in focusing on kind of the deeper theological themes of who Christ is and really getting to the heart of the, the person and work of Christ. And when you, you get John's gospel and put it with the other gospel, it actually gives us, or the other gospels, it actually gives us a fuller understanding of our Lord and Savior. Right? We're getting different perspectives. We're getting the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the people's, the, the writer's characteristics, their, their characters are shown in and through their writings. But I want to turn over very quickly to Mark chapter 1, and I just want to read the account of Jesus' baptism, because I think it's going to help us to understand more clearly the text that we have in front of us today. So Mark chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John, right? John the Baptist here in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, when Jesus came up out of the water is what he's saying here. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. We'll see this later. And then a voice, verse 11, came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. This is speaking of Christ. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. You can turn back over to John, but it's helpful to kind of get some context here and realize that here in our text today, we pick up after Jesus Christ's baptism. This is after this has happened. It's also after his temptation in the wilderness, and it's also after the conversation between John the Baptist and the priests and the Levites that Pastor Brandon preached on last week. So with that context in mind, look at verse 29 as we really see this kind of bold declaration that John the Baptist makes about Christ. The next day, meaning after he had the conversation, right, he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist is likely standing with a group of people here. 
He's standing there with them, and his own followers were likely included here. And he sees Jesus Christ approaching him, probably off in the distance, and he sees Christ coming. And essentially he says, like, behold, look there. That is the one that I have come to proclaim. There he is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Look at him. Behold him. He calls Jesus here the Lamb of God. And listen, this was a very, very provocative statement for this crowd. We've got to take into consideration the, the people to which he is hanging with, the people he is around in this moment. Uh, they were very aware of the Old Testament sacrificial system that had been in place for centuries before. So when they would hear John the Baptist use a phrase like this, right? Behold the Lamb of God. A few thoughts likely ran across their minds. See, we miss it. It doesn't weigh as much on us, but for them, it did, and I want to show you why. First, the Passover feast was likely brought to memory. The Passover feast was very important for these people. It was a, one of the major Jewish holiday, holidays as they celebrated and remembered that God rescued the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. Read about that in Exodus chapter 12, right? The Lord tells the Israelites, he says, hey, you're going to kill a lamb. You're going to take the blood from the lamb. You're going to put it on your doorpost here in your lintel. And when the angel of death, when, when I come by, if I see the blood, I will pass over because I know these are my people. Those that don't have the blood, they receive judgment. They receive death. So the blood would be the sign that would cause the Lord to pass over their houses. Second, there was a daily sacrifice of lambs in the temple. Exodus 29 tells us that each day two lambs would be sacrificed, one in the morning, one in the evening. And this was a reminder to the people that there must be a sacrifice for sin. They had to have a sacrifice. There must be atonement. There must be a payment, something that would be in place and take the place of them. And then thirdly, the words of the prophet Isaiah would have likely come to mind for them. Isaiah 53, 7. You don't have to turn there. You're probably familiar with it. I'll read it for you. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
Now, this signifies the sacrificial lamb that God promised to send into the world to be a once-for-all, perfect, sufficient sacrifice for sinners. This is what the prophet Isaiah was foretelling. So when John the Baptist calls Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, his listeners have a significant framework for the sacrificial system. So listen, this statement would have landed hard. It would have caught them very boldly, very strongly, would have grabbed their attention. Today, for, especially for Westerners in the 21st century, right? The statement doesn't bear the weight it once did to most hearers. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, For one, animal sacrifice is kind of frowned upon in our country, and and for good reason. Uh, We we don't need that anymore. Uh, That is not necessary anymore. Um, It isn't a cultural norm for us here. But secondly got to remember that they had been waiting for the promised Messiah. They had been waiting for this moment. They knew about the prophecies. They they knew about the, the prophets speaking that there would be someone who would come who would then take the place of all the sacrificial systems. The one that would come, that would be the final Passover lamb and would deliver them once and for all. Paul helps us pick up this theme in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So these folks were waiting for this. But here's the kicker that I think really causes our major separation. Those who were waiting were waiting because they knew they needed salvation. They knew that they needed a Savior. Now, many rejected Christ as that Savior, but nevertheless, they knew they needed saving. Today, most won't acknowledge the fact that they need saving. Many have fallen victim to the I'm all right religion of this day and age. The I'm all right religion teaches that I'm a pretty good person. I don't do much wrong. You know, at least I don't do as much as wrong as other people. I'm nice to others. I I serve, I I do good things, right? I I usually take the moral high ground. I'm just living my life, and I'm not hurting anyone else. So, hey, I'm all right, right? I'm good. I don't need anything done on my account. And if there's a, a God, then, hey, this God surely doesn't send good people to hell heard this type of sentiment time and time again. 
The most unfortunate thing is that oftentimes it comes from those who claim to be Christians. Church, listen. Hell will be full of people who were a lot nicer according to the world standards than you and me, especially me. The reason why is because they will fail to acknowledge their need to behold the Lamb of God. They will fail to acknowledge that they need a Savior. They will fail to turn to the one and only sacrifice that is sufficient enough to reconcile them to their Creator. See, they will bank on their own good works, their own merits, their own moral high ground instead of Christ's perfect, finished work. Maybe right now you're thinking of someone just like this. Maybe you're thinking of someone that you know in your family, a friend, a coworker. Maybe it's you. Maybe you're still sitting here thinking like, I'm fine. I've got it all together. I don't need a savior. Martin Luther's once quoted as saying, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. And my question for you today is, where does your sin lie? Have you trusted in the perfect work of Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain? Is it on your shoulders or is it on Christ's shoulders? Let me just give you some comfort today as well. There's hope for anyone that turns to the spotless Lamb of God. Look at John's words here. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see that? Do you see what he says here? Who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John is not preaching universalism here. Universalism is a a, a heresy that teaches everyone is saved in the end, regardless whether they trust in Christ or not. Like, essentially, well, everyone's just going to be saved. And people take this passage and passages like this out of context and, and don't get to the heart of it, and they then apply that to a universalist uh, way of thinking. What John is making clear here is that salvation is offered to all human beings regardless of color, creed, or culture. The point is that salvation is available to the world through Christ. But listen, we got to get this right. We must see that the only way of salvation is through 
the Lamb of God. Turn over real quickly with me to Revelation chapter 5. Last book of your Bible. It's not Revelations. It's one Revelation. Revelation chapter 5. I just want to read this quickly because it, it, it really helps us to see this clear. Uh, John, again, is writing here. We're going to look at, we'll look at verse, uh, go, yeah, verse 8 here. And when he had taken the scroll, now, for those that don't know, let me just give you a quick context here. Uh, this is, he's speaking of the, the end times here. He's speaking of uh, the, what will happen at the consummation of Christ, what, what happens in the future. And here's what he says. So when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the, what's that word there? The lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. When they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. This is important. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From where? From where? Read it with me. Every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then he goes on in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the what? The lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, glory and or honor and glory and blessing. So worthy is the what? The lamb who was slain. The lamb was slain so that we could be saved and God would get the glory he deserves. And he saves a people from where? Every tribe, tongue, and nation. John the Baptist here says that he takes away their sin. This literally means take away by bearing it on one's self. So, brother and sister, Christian, for those who have acknowledged their need for a Savior, have turned away from their sins, have professed Christ and been born again, this passage should give you confidence knowing that your sins have been taken away by the Lamb. They have been removed. He became our substitute. He took our sin upon himself. He was made sin for us. The use here of the present tense takes away is intentional. It shows the completeness of Christ's sacrifice and then the continual application of his sacrifice. The 16th century Scottish scholar Robert Rolock 
once wrote, I love that last name, Rolock. He wrote this concerning this idea. He said, the influence of Christ's sacrifice is perpetual, and his blood never dries up. Praise be to God, because I know that I'm nowhere near perfect. I know that I need God's grace and mercy every single day. So for those who are anxious, wrestling with doubts, questioning their salvation, wondering if your sins are truly forgiven, and let me comfort you today with this passage. Let me remind you that Christ's once-for-all sacrifice is the balm of the wounds of despair. He's paid the price. He's accomplished what we could never accomplish. Brother and sister, let me remind you of the promise of Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he, Jesus Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's paid it all. We rest in the finished work of Christ, brothers and sisters. We fix our eyes on what has been accomplished through him. And here we are given a declarative statement that is so monumental that it should shape every aspect of the way we live as Christians. Jesus Christ took away the sin that separated you from your creator. Praise be to God. John the Baptist has made quite the declaration here. I mean, he, he is really, he, he's planted his flag. And he's not just doing it in private. He's now done it in public. He's done it against the, 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 the religious leaders of his day. And he's done it against the, the culture, the company to which he kept. And those around him this day would have been perplexed, amazed at this statement and the title given to Jesus Christ by John the Baptist. And then he goes on. He gives them confirmation of this bold statement. Look at verse 30 with me. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Verse uh, 30 is synonymous to verse 15, which we talked about a few weeks ago. If you missed that, you can uh, go back, read it for yourself. Uh, you can listen to the sermon online. But essentially, John the Baptist has, com has communicated that although he is physically six months older than Jesus, Jesus is more significant because John, the, as John the Apostle has told us in verse 1, that Jesus always existed. He, he didn't just come into existence 
at his birth. He has always existed from eternity. Then he says, I wasn't really fully acquainted with him. Or in other words, he says like, hey, Jesus and I didn't plan this. You know, we didn't sit down and kind of, you know, figure out, all right, look, hey, you say that I'm the Lamb of God. You know, you go and, and baptize. Like, it wasn't their collusion that came to bring this situation. It wasn't a private collaboration. It wasn't some prearranged agreement between Jesus and John the Baptist. No. John the Baptist here says, I came baptizing with water so that I could point to this man who was far greater than me. Then he goes on to give his testimony and provide the, the full confirmation of his claim here. Verse 32, he says, And John bore witness. And here's what John said, right? I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here we have John's recollection of the events of Jesus' baptism. Remember, we just read that earlier in Mark chapter 1. I'll read verses 10 and 11 again. Jesus came up out of the water. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn apart, the Spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That's God the Father speaking to the Son here. Now, there's a lot going on in this text. There, we could literally spend weeks, months studying this section alone. But for our time, we will get to the main point of why I think John the Apostle includes this here. And then I'm going to answer some questions that likely arise from this. So John says, I, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven like a dove. Question, why the dove? What does the dove symbolize here? The Bible uses eight word pictures that connect the Holy Spirit with an illustration in a metaphorical sense, okay? And this one here is where the dove represents the righteousness of the Holy Spirit. It is considered innocent and blameless. In the Old Testament sacrificial system that we mentioned a little bit uh, above and earlier, a dove could be also offered as an acceptable sacrifice with a, a, as a burnt offering for sin for those who could not maybe afford a lamb. The reason why the Holy Spirit is given this picture here is to further authenticate the righteousness of our Savior. It's further to authenticate His righteousness, which brother and sister, is great news for us. And you know why? Because those who are in Christ 
have obtained the righteousness of Christ. It should comfort you. It should bless your soul. His righteousness is now your righteousness. John the Baptist here tells us the Holy Spirit appeared and descended from heaven and then he, he remained with Jesus. This is important because this is a sign of Jesus' fully divine anointing. John speaks of this again in John 3 as he speaks of the fullness of Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that in later study. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit was with them at times, right? But the Holy Spirit was not in them. The Spirit came to people in the Old Testament, helped them to accomplish particular God-given tasks and goals. But the Spirit did not remain with them individually. Once again, we look at the prophet Isaiah who says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And here he's speaking of the promised Messiah. So what John is telling us is that Jesus Christ is the Trinitarian confirmed Messiah. What was prophesied has now come. Then we see these two types of baptism here. See, baptism by water, baptism by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 33. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? John the Baptist's baptism was done with water, done by immersion, right? That's what baptize means. It was for a repentant person before Pentecost, and the result was they were recognized as kind of an Old Testament believer. And this was being done before Christ's arrival. So baptism wasn't a a new thing here. This particular baptism is not salvific. It wasn't uh, being baptized into water. It it did not save them. Meaning that the water was and is still a symbol, right? Just as it is today. We don't teach that baptism by water saves anyone. We believe that water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. It's a public declaration. Jesus' baptism, on the other hand, is totally different. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is indeed salvific. And it's absolutely necessary for salvation. Water baptism while normally prescribed in the New Testament as a sign of alignment with Christ, 
is not necessary for salvation? Because if it was, Jesus wouldn't have told the thief on the cross that day, today you will be with me in heaven. Remember, they didn't pull him down and do a baptismal. There wasn't a little ceremony going on. Jesus says, hey, no, you're, you're going to be with me in heaven. So we know and we come to understand that baptism by water is not necessary for salvation. Spirit baptism is done by who? Jesus Christ. It's the mode is the Holy Spirit. It's not water. The recipient are believers from Pentecost forward, and it happens upon faith in Christ. Then they are recognized at that point as members of the universal body of Christ. The universal body of Christ is all the Christians. Christians that have gone before us, Christians that will come after us, Christians that we've never met, right? They are the church, the universal church. We, as a local representation of that body, are a body of what? Baptized believers who have been saved, regenerate, and have now aligned ourselves with our brothers and sisters saying, hey, I'm one of you. That's what baptism does. Water baptism. John MacArthur puts it like this. Spirit baptism occurs when Jesus Christ, Lord of his church, from Pentecost on, by the Spirit, places Christians into his body, the church, at the moment a person puts faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. By doing so, Christians are immersed into and participate in the universal body of Christ by the Savior's sovereign will, end quote. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is found in Christ alone is a regeneration of those who were previously dead in their sins, could not do anything. You're made alive, brought to repentance, understanding, clarity of who Christ is, that he is the Lamb of God. If you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. There's some who teach that there's a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit, a whole separate thing here, and I would lovingly argue that they are wrong. I think Scripture clearly teaches that those who have genuinely been saved and regenerated have the Holy Spirit. We, we have the Spirit in us. Listen to Paul's words to the church in Corinth, who were doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the name of the Spirit. If you don't know that, read 1 Corinthians. It's, it's very... Uh, telling for the times. But he says, for in one spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Speaking of the church, the body of Christ. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, that's kind of, think of that, that world, 
right? Like anyone. Doesn't matter where you came from. Doesn't matter what your, your status is. Guess what? Christ welcomes you with love. He welcomes you with open arms. And he says, all were made to drink of one spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13, if you want to look that up later. Other scripture clearly teaches us that the Father seals Christians with the Holy Spirit as a sign and as ownership and a guarantee of one's salvation. We read that the Spirit indwells Christians. In other places, we read that the Spirit guides Christians. The Spirit produces spiritual fruit. The fruits of the what? The Spirit. The Spirit then also gifts Christians for service in the church, in the body. Each one of you has been gifted by the Holy Spirit differently, uniquely, to serve in different ways. Some of you have the gift of mercy. Some of you have the gift of hospitality. Some have the gift of teaching. Some have the gift of whatever. We've been given the gift generously. The list goes on, right? But it's important to note that these promises do not contain contingencies outside of faith in Christ alone. Amen. It's faith in Christ. It's Christ alone. But most important, what we see clearly here in our text today is that access to the Spirit is only found in Christ. This is why Jesus gives the Spirit as he departs and ascends to heaven. Because why? He has the authority to give the Spirit. He baptizes in the Spirit. Meaning he, he immerses those. He gives us his Spirit. There's no separation here. There's no second-class Christians. While there's a lot more to say and learn about the role of the Holy Spirit today for Christians, we're going to get to that. We're going to, John picks this up a few more times, and there's some, a, a lot more to, to learn here. And today we're going to stop. We're going to stop here. Because I think John has given us enough to consider. Brothers and sisters, let us consider that there is none like Christ. There's none like Jesus Christ. Nothing can compare. There's nothing you can do to fill the, the void that maybe you feel when you look at the world around you except in Christ. There's nothing you can do to fulfill the need and longing for love and acceptance, except in Christ. There's no 
possible way to obtain access to the Holy Spirit except through faith in Christ. This text teaches us that Christ alone has the power to forgive and cleanse us for our sins because he has become himself the lamb who was slain for the sacrifice. He also has the power to distribute the Holy Spirit to those who place their faith in him. So church, let us continue to marvel at our Savior. Behold the Lamb of God. As we continue to navigate this world around us. Would we be a church that just fix our eyes on Christ? Would we be a church that trusts the Holy Spirit who has been granted to us to give us fullness? To walk according to the good works that were prepared for us before we were even born. So regardless of what you are going through today, regardless of what we now see even in our world, and it's, it's tough, right? It, it's tough to wrestle with the, the, like, why is this happening? Why do bad things happen? Why is there so much evil in the world? Let us be a people that go here and find ourselves rooted in God's word, trusting the spirit to work in and through us as we grow to understand our Savior more and more each and every day. Let's be committed to more word time than news time. More word time than social media time. More word time than entertainment. Than trying to fulfill ourselves with things that will leave us empty. Let me pray. Father, would you help us today to marvel at the kindness that was displayed through Christ? Would we be a people that truly trust in the finished work of Christ on our behalf? Father, I pray for those that may be weary today, that may have been just knocked down this week. Maybe they've stumbled into sin. Maybe they have uh, fallen victim to doubt and anxiety and anxiousness over the things of the world. I pray that they would rest their souls in you. They would look to Christ, the all-sufficient Savior, who has paid it all. They would trust the, the immersion of the Spirit in their lives, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened upon the day of their regeneration. Lord, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, that does not know the power that is found by faith in Christ and Christ alone. I pray, Father, that you would work in their heart right now. You would speak to them, that you would move them towards repentance, that they would acknowledge their need for a Savior, and they would see the answer to that in Christ and Christ alone. 
pray that in Christ's name.